Hi, welcome to the Big Commerce Podcast. Hello, welcome to a brand new episode of the Big Commerce Podcast. My name is Luigi, and in today's episode, I'm joined by Shirish Nadkarni. Shirish is a successful serial entrepreneur who's worked for the likes of Microsoft during the Hotmail acquisition and the launch of MSN. He's worked for Research in Motion and also co-founded the world's largest language learning site, Live Mocha, which was then sold to Rosetta Stone. In today's episode, we understand how marketplaces like Amazon, eBay and Airbnb have evolved over the years, how trust plays a huge role in online shopping and marketplaces and how marketplaces build trust with their customers how marketplaces have transformed traditional business models and what the future holds for marketplaces. Today's episode is extremely interesting and I certainly learned a lot. I hope you enjoy it too. Shirish, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. I've been looking forward to um, to this podcast for many reasons, but uh, just the knowledge that you have around marketplaces and how it kind of just reading your book um, I've learned so many things. It's um, it's incredible how you've managed to condense it into uh, into a book. So I've been looking forward to um, to interviewing you, but more so after the book. Um, I've got plenty of questions for you that I think our listeners will uh, will enjoy as well. So for for those that haven't um, that aren't you know don't know you or haven't heard of you, um, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and um, your experience? Uh, you bet. Yeah. So um, I'm a native of uh, Seattle. I've been in the tech industry for the last 35 years. I uh, started my career at Microsoft in 1987. Uh, this was one year after the Microsoft IPO. Um, I worked for Microsoft for about 12 years. Uh, and in that, I uh, did the acquisition of Hotmail, which was one of the biggest acquisitions that Microsoft did at that time. Uh, and then launched MSN.com, which became a top web portal. And then after that, I started my entrepreneurial journey. Uh, I've done multiple startups, uh, had multiple exits. Uh, I now spend time writing books. I've written two books so far and also advising and investing in startups. I think you're, you're being quite humble there, Shirish, because I've done my research. And yes, you worked 12 years at uh, Microsoft and in the acquisition and then Rim Blackberry, but you also co-founded a company called LiveMoke, which became the world's largest language learning site, which was then sold to a little company called Rosetta Stone. So That's I think right. you slightly undersold yourself there. But And then obviously working uh, now as a TIE um, group. But it's um, I think this is one of the reasons why you kind of have this authority, because when you talk about marketplaces, because of your time at LiveMoke, where you, you built a marketplace, um, of, and then you had millions of members, 15 million members. Yeah, so we had uh, uh, about 15 million members in 200 different countries and that we had about 300,000 language tutors around the world. So we built this marketplace of language learners and tutors uh, where you got instruction from Limoca, but also you could sign up with one of the language tutors to uh, actually practice your, the target language that you were planning to learn. And I think that's a really important point because... I mean, within my industry of, of, e-ta, of e-commerce and, and retail, when we think marketplaces, we predominantly think of, you know, physical goods. So your Amazons, yeah. your Ebays, your Etsys, and um, obviously the, the new wave of marketplaces that are being spun out by by retailers um, such as um, Walmart and so on. But actually, 
you know, and you you touch on it within the book, marketplaces kind of everywhere from from Airbnb um, mm. through to Alibaba and, and obviously live uh, live Mocha as well. So, um, I mean, your your um, your latest book because um, it's not the first one that uh, that you've written uh, dives deep into um, into marketplaces, um, not just dissecting the kind of marketplaces and the success they've had. Um, but actually how they've been able to build those marketplaces and really build a, uh, a position of, um, I guess, partly monopoly, but how, as the title says, the winner takes it all, um, how marketplaces are, are creating monopolies. So why don't you talk to us a bit about the um, the inspiration? Why did you write this book and, and why now? Yes. Um, so uh, as I mentioned just now, um, I had the opportunity to to create and run a marketplace, a large marketplace uh, at Limoca with 15 million members and 300,000 language tutors. Um, so understood the dynamics of um, uh, of launching and scaling a marketplace uh, and the uh, the power it has, the network effects that are generated uh, that allow you to become a monopoly in that space. Uh, so I've been fascinated by marketplaces for a long time. Uh, primarily because of the fact that, um, you know, as you establish a critical mass of suppliers and consumers, then network effects kick in and it becomes a virtuous cycle uh, where, you know, as you have more consumers, more suppliers join the network. As you have more suppliers, more consumers want to buy from you because you have a wide range of suppliers and it becomes a virtuous cycle that leads to um, a winner takes all, a winner takes most kind of situation. We're going to touch on, on. I'm going to touch on some of these things um, later later on, but um, the things around the network effects and um, and so on. Um, how have marketplaces, predominantly maybe the the, the 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 more known ones and the ones within our sector, like Amazon, like eBay, um, and so on, evolved over the years? Yeah. So um, Amazon, as you know, for, you know, was a uh, uh, primarily an e-commerce uh, site initially, uh, and then uh, they uh, decided uh, made a very important strategic decision to open up their platform to other suppliers, and then to offer services like fulfillment by Amazon, and and uh, they were the first platform to do that, and and they were very successful in attracting suppliers. To that platform now, they have about 2.3 million suppliers, um, and they are the dominant uh, marketplace uh, with you know millions of suppliers. Uh, Walmart, uh, in contrast, um, you know also tried to copy Amazon. They were very late to the market, as you know, uh, and they only have 50,000 uh, suppliers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, vastly lower than uh, Amazon. And uh, that's the reason that Amazon uh, has become a monopoly and Walmart is a distant second. Um, so, uh, you know, that's an example of Amazon, of course. eBay uh, also has had great success, uh, though today um, uh, auctions really makes up only 10% of their sales. Uh, most of it is fixed price. And, and that's where they have lost to Amazon and uh, most suppliers are on Amazon. Most consumers prefer to go to Amazon first as opposed to eBay. Yeah, we're seeing that. And obviously eBay made that shift, I think, to kind of partly shake off also an image that they had around kind of, you know, the type of customer that would shop on eBay. But that's certainly, um, 
uh, changed. You, you touch in your um, in your book about the importance of trust from a marketplace, yes. and the example you used was um, an Airbnb renter who mm. had their or host who basically had their house that their apartment um, ransacked by um, by an individual, and that was a pivotal point, I think, within Airbnb and how they approached um, yes. things because there was this assumed trust. And then when, in an instance, that trust now became questionable. Um, and you touch on the eight ways that um, marketplaces can really ensure that they there is that certainly perception, but there is that trust between right. its, itself and uh, and the customers. What, why don't you touch on, on, on a few of the most important ones? Um, from yeah, establishing trust is super important for any marketplace and that, that brings uh, greater liquidity uh, and greater transactions in the marketplace. Uh, so there are a variety of ways in which you can establish trust. Um, the first and most common way is through reviews and ratings. Uh, you know, Amazon um, does a really good job, as you know, with that. Um, a lot of people go to Amazon to research products and, and they look at the ratings and reviews. Now, certainly uh, they have been, ratings and reviews have been abused uh, by suppliers uh, with false uh, ratings, false reviews, and so forth. So you have to invest in algorithms to detect uh, fake uh, reviews and remove them from the system uh, to create more trust. Um, so that's one mechanism. Uh, another mechanism is uh, uh, through um, insurance. Uh, so you refer to the Airbnb example uh, where the uh, host... Uh, Home was ransacked, uh, and so today uh, Amazon offers a one million dollar insurance policy um, uh, to make sure that if your home is damaged in any way, that you get insurance to cover the expenses associated with uh, addressing that damage. Yeah, you, you mean Airbnb? Sorry, not Amazon. Yeah, sorry, Airbnb. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and then uh, you have uh, escrow services. Uh, this was something that was pioneered by uh, Alibaba. Uh, in China, you know, there was a lot of distrust whether, you know, you if you paid for an item, whether you would get the item from the merchant. And uh, so they established an escrow service where you the funds would be released to the uh, to, to the merchant only when the consumer confirmed that they had received the uh, item and they were satisfied uh, with that item. So those are some of the ways that you can establish trust in a marketplace. And I think that's the reason why I kind of brought that up is I think for a lot of merchants, predominantly, or even ones that don't sell on on marketplaces um, or even businesses in general, I think, you know, that, I think trust is a really important piece of, of business. Um, yeah. You know, very few companies can kind of push trust to the side because, you know, maybe they have such a dominant market position. But for anyone, anyone that's doing in, um, you know, anyone's in business, um, you know, they need to make sure that there is that trust between themselves and their customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, different marketplaces um, have different ways. And, and one of the things you touched on uh, referring Alibaba was obviously different markets have different um I guess I won't call them standards, but you know, certain markets were happy to, you know, would accept counterfeit goods that you might historically have found on Alibaba, whereas obviously others um, weren't. And I guess that's where 
maybe certain uh, markets weren't really suitable for Alibaba because it didn't have the same success it did in its home, uh, yeah, in its home uh, country. Um, you also touched on things like communication and just making sure that the customer feels like they're in control through things like refunds. They're they're critical um, to make sure that you know the the customer continues to come back because you spoke about you know different metrics such as lifetime value and so on um and they will only happen when the 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 customer is confident enough to be able to go back a second time and a third time and um, and a fourth time right right yeah uh i mean there's also an example i give about uh offer up uh which is in the used goods market and and uh with craigslist for example in the u.s uh there's a lot of distrust in using Craigslist because there have been many examples of people getting mugged and, and so forth uh, when they meet the consumers and the suppliers meet mm-hmm. to exchange the item. And so with OfferUp, they have an identity verification system uh, which allows you to um, make sure that you're really dealing with the right person and if something goes wrong, you can report that person to the police and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also is a very interesting um, piece you wrote about um, how kind of Airbnb use Craigslist as their kind of yeah. lead source um, right. to find. I mean, the Airbnb story that um, I'd, I'd heard of many years ago. Um, there was a, a interview with um, with the, with one of the co-founders. So it's a very interesting story how they started up and with the cereal, etc. Um, but actually, it just shows you that find this business is now huge. But actually, at the beginning, they still had to be resourceful, and yes. and even Instacart as well. You know, where where the founder was the one, you know, doing deliveries and so on. It just kind of goes to show that not everything starts from this, you know, kind of um, I don't know, high level, you know, uh, heavily financed business. That actually sometimes those co-founders were the ones that rolled their sleeves up and actually did the the heavy lifting at the beginning to get um, to get the wheels moving. And I think that's really um, encouraging to businesses. Because you know, you kind of see the end product, if you like, or certainly the the successful side of that that part. But you don't see all the all the heavy work and all the beginning that the co-founder put in to um, to make uh, you know that that business grow. Um, we spoke um, briefly about kind of customers. Um, what 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 role do they play in making a marketplace a success or not? Um, well, um, in, in terms of uh, consumers and the impact on marketplace, uh, you know, um, one of the things that uh, you can do is uh, really uh, track what kinds of um, items they're looking for. And that provides a lot of useful research data that you can use to populate your marketplace with the right set of, uh, of suppliers. Uh, today, you know, um, People no longer go to Google to search for a product. Uh, they go to Amazon. And that's certainly Absolutely, true for yeah. my own uh, behavior. If I have a product that I want to buy, then I first go to um, Amazon and, and do my research. I read all the reviews and, and so forth. Um, so there's a lot of rich data that you can gather from consumers in how they use the platform. And you can then use that to better populate uh, the suppliers uh, and, and also uh, improve your search algorithm so that you're um, highlighting the most uh, useful and most trusted items uh, to the consumers. Let, let's stay on that because the, 
the like you say, the algorithms, you know, marketplaces having to invest in technology for so many different reasons, not just from the kind of front end, the, the, the merchandising side, but like we've said, you know, the security and uh, and verification and um, and so on. Have you see are there examples of any kind of technological innovations that have really made an impact in the way that marketplaces have evolved or, or maybe been successful over the last few years? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, let's take the the uh, uh, impact of mobile on marketplaces. So Craigslist, um, as you know, uh, was the uh, eight hundred pound gorilla in the used goods marketplace uh, in the U.S. And was uh, it was hard to imagine that somebody could come in and displace, uh, you know, a monopoly in that space. Uh, but OfferUp uh, didn't manage to do that. Uh, they took advantage of mobile uh, to allow you to simply take a picture of your, uh, you know, use item, uh, household item, and very in a few steps publish that um, on their marketplace, and then engaged in instant messaging with. Uh, consumers to negotiate uh, the appropriate price and address any questions that the buyers would have. And that was significantly better uh, experience than what you had with Craigslist, where, you know, you had to use a PC to upload a picture, you know, people would respond via email and that took, you know, the suppliers would take several days to respond back and, and, and so forth. Uh, so that's one example. Another example, of course, is Uber. Uh, the fact that uh, mobile really enabled Uber to to uh, to happen in the first place. Without mobile, you wouldn't have uh, drivers getting alerts on uh, riders in their neighborhood who are looking for a ride, uh, and then you know uh, watching uh, on the phone where the ride is and and how far it is and when it'll arrive and so forth. Was only possible through location tracking and mobile. And with location tracking as well, one of the really interesting case studies that um, is in your book is about Convoy. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of give a recap of the marketplaces that you um, talk about. So we've got Instacart, Airbnb, DoorDash, and OfferUp that you just mentioned, um, yeah. Alibaba, Convoy, Upwork, and Kazaver. And obviously you spoke, speak about um, Craigslist, Uber, Amazon, eBay, um, and, um, and OpenTable as well, which yeah. again, we don't traditionally think is a marketplace. I mean, yeah. you know, define it and, and it's a marketplace, um, but we don't necessarily uh, kind of, you know, think of that as, as, as a marketplace. So again, Convoy, I mean, because there, there was a, they really entered a market with a lot of distrust. Mm-hmm. You, know, you said that the, the you know, the, the hauliers, the companies that had the, the trucks, they didn't really trust the, the the status quo as was at the moment. The companies that were working in that sector because the payments were late. Um, sometimes the jobs didn't go through. Um, you know, there was no tracking for, for their customers as well to be able to check things. So when you speak about kind of GPS on um, on uh, phones, again, a system like Convoy, that's what they did, you know, to be able to track yeah. that that um, that that lorry, it used the phone's GPS. And, and again, it's pretty native technology that, you know, the, the, the truck driver didn't have to, upgrade to a particular type of technology or buy an additional um, functionality. It, it was out of the smartphone that yeah. this um, this benefit, um, you know, kind of came up. And, and that's why, again, this book is so interesting for me because it just dissects different types of marketplaces 
um, and how disruptors have just come in and like you say just knocked the 800 pound or you know half a ton for those metric gorilla from the top spot because maybe that company got complacent assumed they had a really comfortable position in the market but actually you know didn't really um invest in better serving their mm-hmm. merchants at the end of the day their um, their customers um i you speak about at the beginning you, t- you spoke about um network um effects why don't we just do a deeper dive around that and let's let's talk about network effects yeah um, of marketplaces yeah um, uh, you know there's uh, uh, generally platforms uh, uh, are um, uh, enable network effects once you get to a critical mass of course getting off the ground is very difficult because uh, suppliers don't want to come until there are consumers consumers don't want to come because there are no suppliers so I talk about how to jumpstart a marketplace in my book. But once you have critical mass, then uh, more and more suppliers join the, the platform uh, because uh, there are lots of consumers. And then more consumers join the platform uh, to search for products because there is a wide array of suppliers. And it becomes a uh, virtuous cycle uh, or network effects kick in at that point. Uh, to you know, allow more and more consumers, suppliers to join the marketplace, uh, and then ultimately it becomes a monopoly uh, in that, or you know, winner takes all or winner takes most kind of situation in that marketplace. How are the different network network effects? You got multi-tenanting, uh, local network uh, effects, um, network effect. So, kind of, is there really one that I guess? Is there a transition that the marketplace goes through through with with these network effects, or do they all come at the same time? Like how does how would a marketplace kind of navigate those things or be able to achieve those various network effects? Yeah, so you talked about multi-tenanting. Uh, That's a very important uh, concept, uh, and that will determine if a marketplace can become a monopoly or not. Um, how so? Yeah, uh, so basically, multi-tenanting means. Uh, being on multiple marketplaces at the same time. Uh, I'll give you two examples. Uh, one is um, Amazon. The other one is, uh, uh, is uh, DoorDash. In the case of Amazon, um, it is very difficult for a supplier to be multi-tenant between two marketplaces uh, because there's a lot of work that if somebody's on Amazon, there's a lot of work that they have to uh, do to... Uh, ensure they have proper inventory, that they are providing proper customer support, they are um, you know, uh, fulfilling the uh, requests in a timely fashion. All of that has to be managed. And you generally have mom and pop supplier, millions of them on Amazon. And it's very difficult for them to be on a, on a second marketplace, which is why Walmart, even though they're a major e-commerce player, has not been able to really attract more than 50,000 suppliers. Uh, so that's why you know Amazon is the eight thousand pound gorilla versus Walmart in that space. Mm-hmm. However, in the DoorDash example, um, you don't have millions of suppliers; you only have thousands of restaurants in a, in a particular region, and so um, it becomes easier for a competitor to come in and replicate that. And it's easy for a restaurant to multi-tenant and be on multiple platforms. And that's why in the U.S. you have three different 
marketplaces. There's Uber Eats, there's DoorDash, and then there's uh, Grubhub to some extent. And so it's a it's a winner take most situation as opposed to winner takes all type of situation. And you see that here in in the UK as well, where um, we have Just Eat, we have Deliveroo, and we have Uber Eats as well. So when you mm-hmm. talk about the kind of multi tenanting, um, yeah. you know it's um, it's certainly kind of on a on a, on a global um, level. Um, tracking network effects is. Well, you kind of dissect it quite down because there's there's only really three major metrics that you uh, you talk mm-hmm. about. But before we do that, um, you talk about power users. Yeah. Okay. So so define a power user to begin with. Well, I mean, a power user is somebody who um, frequently uh, you know uh, logs into the uh, marketplace and is somebody who purchases uh, a lot of products. Uh, so typically, um, with Amazon, for example. Anyone who's a Prime member tends to be a power user. Um, I certainly found that out with my own behavior. You know, before I, you know, signed up for Prime, I would not buy many items. But once I became a Prime member, and uh, shipping essentially became free, you know, I was just going crazy buying lots of items on Amazon. Um, yeah, so having power users is very beneficial for your business. And would you say the the number of power users is going up because kind of if if you correlate it to things like prime membership, yeah. where I mean, fine, you know, it, it can dip and so on, but actually with with prime membership, it opened out, so you had power users before prime membership, um, and now prime membership kind of opened up that gate to so many more yes. uh, consumers becoming power power users. Yeah, I mean, I think Amazon has like two hundred million prime members and and um, and it's a very you know they, what they have found is that even though they're getting quote-unquote free shipping that uh, at, the end, at the end of the day they make more revenue uh, and profitability with those prime members than people who are not you know prime members so it's to their benefit to get as many people signed up for prime as possible yeah i mean I, i'm no longer a prime member but you know every time i buy anything from amazon you get that pop-up Try Prime free for th- you know it's, it's everything's pushing towards you. Not necessarily like you say signing up to Prime, it's getting that second and third and fourth order, which yeah. obviously relates to lifetime value LTV. One of the other metrics yeah. that you talk mm-hmm. about, right? Um, uh, you know, under, under the umbrella of of unit um, economics, ha- ha- what how important of a metric is is that for a marketplace? Oh, that's very important. I mean, the two um, main metrics that a market need, uh, needs to track is lifetime value, which is the profitability of that customer over that customer's lifetime, and then the customer acquisition cost. And typically, you want to have a ratio at least of three to one between lifetime value and customer acquisition cost, if not five to one you know, ratio. Um, and as I'm sure... Amazon has found with prime members is their the churn is pretty low, so the lifetime value can be uh, pretty significant over time. Mm. Obviously, you know within that, I mean, I was driving the other day, and on the same road there were two Amazon vans, one at yeah. each end. So obviously they've had to invest in infrastructure, but like yeah. you say, two hundred million members, and you know mm-hmm. it's not a massive amount as a monthly fee, but compound that globally, and it's it's a huge revenue stream then for like you say the profitability of um, of those customers. Yeah. Um, you also talk about um, organic and paid users. So, yeah. 
um, obviously customer kind of acquisition. Um, let's talk about that metric um, there. Why is that one important for marketplaces to, to monitor? Yeah, ultimately, um, you know, um, you want to have as many organic users as possible versus paid users. You know, initially, I understand that you will have to invest in advertising uh, on Google or Facebook or whatever to attract users to your platform. Uh, but that's not really the best way to build your user base. Uh, ultimately, you want the network effects to kick in and basically consumers to be drawn to your platform organically. So you're not really paying, you know, there's no customer acquisition costs really. Uh, and it's all pure profitability from that point on uh, once you have attracted that user to your platform. Mm. Um, you also talk about um, kind of curves, but I think they, they, you know, they'll have to buy the book to, to read about that. But it's, mm. it's really kind of interesting that actually the, the metrics that go into making sure that kind of your marketplace um, is on the right trajectory and going, you know, towards uh, the success is yeah. um, is, is super um, super important. Um, how how do you think marketplaces are going to evolve over the next year, a few years? I mean, obviously, since COVID, e-commerce um, within our sector has, has evolved considerably. I think marketplaces have have done their bit as well. I mean, Airbnb obviously got hit quite badly during the um, pandemic pretty much overnight, uh, mm. whereas other marketplaces like Amazon saw the opposite and, and huge growth. But where do you see kind of any trends in terms of marketplaces over the, over the coming years? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of different ways that marketplaces can evolve. Uh, uh, one is to um, uh, manage the transaction end-to-end. Uh, you've seen that with uh, sites like uh, marketplaces like Angie's List, for example, uh, so if you have some job that has to be um, performed, in the old days, you know, they would list a, 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 a number of handymen or, or, you know, places that would come in and do the job and you'd have to search through them and decide who you want to pick. Today, uh, instead of that, they allow you to provide more information about the job and then they will, you know, so you can upload pictures of the work that has to be done and kind of, you know, they have different categories that you can pick from and so forth. And ultimately they will then take that information, go to all the different suppliers on the network and come back with responses with, you know, somebody saying, okay, I'll take me $75 to do the job or $150 to do the job. And then you can decide who you want to pick. So uh, there's more management of that transaction happening uh, with these, you know, second generation, third generation marketplaces. Uh, the second trend that I can see is uh, uh, using ChatGPT, uh, for example, to really improve the experience. So in the case of Airbnb, for example, instead of uh, searching for a home rental, you could describe, hey, I want to go to Sedona for my trip. And uh, can you uh, plan my trip, you know, for me with all kinds of, not only just a home rental, but different kinds of experiences. And I've done that myself, actually, with ChatGPT. I uh, asked it to plan one of my trips, and it did a phenomenal job of doing that. So I can see how you can use uh, large language models to really um, uh, create a whole new transaction uh, where all that information is managed for you. 
I did a, an episode of Solocast a few weeks ago around kind of artificial intelligence and, and how systems like ChatGPT can help. But again, you're, you're, you're so right because not only are you making um, the experience easier for the customer, for, for the consumer, for the end yeah. user, um, but actually then it's also making it more comprehensive answers. Yes. So you're not just saying, like you said, here's the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the apartment or the house or whatever it is, uh, you're actually then kind of, you know, planning out the rest of that. And that's a, a value add um, yeah. to the, um, again, one of the network effects, the value adds to um, to the consumer experience. Um, mm-hmm. for, for anyone wanting to break into the market, the, the marketplace space, what advice, apart from buy the book and read it and, you know, mm-hmm. learn as much as you can, what advice would you have for anyone wanting to uh, to break into the space? Well, uh, the, the one of the key things that I talk about in my big book is, uh, you know, how to jumpstart a marketplace. Um, and it's very important to uh, think uh, long and hard about how to do that. Um, and most of the time, you're, you know, instead of launching on a nationwide basis, it's very important to do that on a localized mm-hmm. basis. Uh, so again, I'll give you the example of OfferUp. When they uh, launched, their initial uh, focus was on the city of Seattle, and yeah. they basically established a critical mass in in the area of Seattle, uh, where people could uh, exchange used goods uh, through that platform. Uh, in contrast, uh, one of the competitors launched on a nationwide basis uh, and was not successful because, you know, if I have uh, somebody signing up from Seattle and another person signing up from New York. It doesn't benefit either party because they can't exchange local goods. Um, so you have to start with a narrow niche first and then uh, establish critical mass. And then once you have, once you know how that playbook works in a specific market, then replicate that playbook in other markets. And you've seen others like Instacart and DoorDash following that same playbook. There's two things that, that um, I'm really glad you said. The first one is is playbook, um, because I think that's a, such an important thing to do, which is put together that playbook so that you can replicate and yeah. iterate um, as you expand. Mm-hmm. And and the the first point you put around kind of you know starting off um, really locally. Um, somebody once told me kind of the the example that they picked up from the book as well, which was are you trying to boil the saucepan or are you trying to boil the ocean. You know, because if you try to try to boil the the, the saucepan, you're going to get that water boiling, and yes. probably at a much faster rate than trying to boil an ocean, which is going to be near and impossible. So, as you right. said, with with offer up, yeah, you know, you start uh, start locally, achieve that critical mass, that success, and then once you've got your your concept proven and mm-hmm. um, you know all lined out, then you really um, go uh, go all out in, um, mm-hmm. in scale. Um, where can listeners? Um, learn more about the book and obviously order their copy. Yeah. So obviously uh, you can order uh, my book from Amazon. Uh, I have actually uh, self published the book. Uh, It was, it's quite amazing uh, really uh, what uh, services Amazon can provide. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all I had to do was to uh, create the book in Microsoft word and create a book cover uh, upload it to Amazon, and they print on demand. Uh, so I don't even have to hold inventory or pay for inventory. It's all done 
uh, for me. Um, so, so definitely you can order the book on Amazon. You can also go to my website, which is shirishnatkarni.com, and you can learn about um, uh, other books I've written as well as blog articles I've written on various topics. We'll, we'll link to all of those in the show notes as well. And if listeners want to connect with you, where's the best way that they can do that? Uh, they can certainly connect with me on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter. Uh, and I welcome all you know connections. Uh, I'm happy to meet with uh, uh, aspiring entrepreneurs and help them in their journey. I um, I said I, I really found your book uh, interesting, and also your your career. You've you've had a lot of success. Um, a lot of experience and one of the things that um, we ask I guess at the end of the podcast is if there's a book or podcast that they've recently read that they'd like to share with listeners but what I'd like to ask you um, Nirish is if you were to go back and, and do it again what's the one thing that you would do which you feel has led to your success? Yeah, the uh, the one uh, attribute that I feel has been uh, very helpful uh, to me is um, really having a learning mindset. Um, I've been very fortunate to have uh, been um, able to experience, you know, initially with Microsoft, the PC revolution, then the internet, then mobile, now AI and so forth. So um, along the way, uh, what I have tried to do is to learn about the different uh, trends in the market and see, you know, look for opportunities and seize those opportunities. Uh, and my learning mindset has really been very helpful in that regard. I, I would share with you. I mean, I, I enjoy learning. There was a time when I, very early on in my career, I didn't really feel the need to learn. You know, you kind of, there's a Dunder-Kruger effect, but you kind of feel that you know it all. But actually, it's true that because you don't know what you don't know and every day learning something new and you kind of sometimes, you see some information, sometimes like how grateful you are for having learned that thing because actually that's something that completely changes your approach or or your mindset or just opens up uh, whole uh, new opportunities. Um, So a learning mindset for sure. You know, and I guess it's uh, it's encouraging that um, I share that. So um, you know, hopefully, I, I get to share some uh, some success in future um, as well. Um, well, Shira, it's been a pleasure um, talking to you. Um, your book, uh, Winner Takes All: Case Studies in How Online Marketplaces Are Creating Monopolies, available on Amazon and on your website as well. I would urge anyone who is interested in not necessarily setting up a marketplace, but even just understanding how they work and how they their business can can kind of capitalize on, on marketplaces to get a copy. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting going to into incredible depth. I've uh, for sure learned a lot from it and uh, very glad that I got the opportunity to uh, speak with you. Thank you so much. It's been a great uh, interview and, and really enjoyed talking to you. Excellent. Well, I've enjoyed it as well. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Big Commerce Podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. To learn more about our podcast, listen to previous episodes or get in contact, please visit our website at thebigcommercepodcast.com and make sure you're following us on our social media on Instagram and Twitter. Until next week, thank you very much.